Good morning, Bethel. Well, we missed you all last Sunday as we visited Beth's family in Illinois, and I'm thankful for Blake Hardcastle and his um, repeated over the years uh, we've been here, his willing availability to minister God's word um, in my absence. Uh, You all were especially on our hearts as we drove out of town early on Monday morning because of a very special package of emails and cards and gifts that um, Gail Santa Maria put together, collected, and then delivered to us the night before we left. As most of you know, um, she put together this surprise. It was really humbling and encouraging uh, to read those emails and cards of encouragement. So um, wanted to thank you, uh, Beth and I, on behalf of our family. She wrote in her little card to explain what it was. She said, throughout your journey today, read a few cards at a time so that by the time you reach Chicago, your hearts will be filled with our love and you will feel the encouragement that we are sending with you. We did read them um, as we traveled and we were filled up with that encouragement. So um, it was a blessing. We thank God for all of you, our church family. Um, You've been such a supportive and loving church family to our family. Um, We love you and we're really thankful to God for you all. Very thankful to God for bringing us here um, to Bethel to be a part of you. Um, You've been so supportive, so loving, and you've been gracious and patient and understanding of this young pastor um, who has a lot to learn and many ways in which he needs to grow. So again, just thank you. Um, It was really encouraging. We were able to attend Grace Church, the church that we came from last Sunday, and I'm happy to report that God is faithfully at work in that church um, in some very conspicuous ways, and um, so it was encouraging to be back with them for a Sunday. But we were glad to get back home. And just yesterday, uh, it was another evidence, uh, encouraging, conspicuous evidence of the fact that God is at work here um, in our church in some very conspicuous ways. What a blessed event the tea was uh, yesterday. A lot of work to be sure. Um, so many of you labored intensely with such willing hearts like Greg mentioned, and it was labor well worth it. So um, I thank you all as well. Jen did an excellent job presenting the gospel in such a clear and compelling way. She's going to be flying home today to her family, um, her husband and five children. So pray for her as she heads back. Um, And again, like Greg said, please continue to pray for those gospel seeds that were sown. The Lord would water them Um, And maybe the watering comes in the form of you hostesses following up with the ladies that you invited that you had at your tables, or maybe a woman that you met at the tea that you didn't know previously, um, and the Lord will use you to water those seeds. And uh, at the end of the day, we're completely dependent on God to cause the growth. So let's continue to pray for them. Let's pray now, and then we're going to dive into Luke 18. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you that we have the privilege, the freedom to worship you corporately like this together. And we thank you that by your grace, we can call you, Father, that we are your people and you are our God, the sheep of your hand. You are the good, the great shepherd. And we are so glad to be in your flock led and fed and protected by you. 
we are weak and needy. And so we are so glad that a sovereign shepherd watches over us. And we are so thankful that that all-powerful shepherd is also merciful and compassionate and gracious, sending your son as the sacrificial lamb to die in our place so that we could be in your flock. So Lord, would you remind us of these great gospel realities and truths, truths about ourselves, truths about yourself as we consider your word this morning. As those great gospel truths were clearly shared yesterday, Lord, would you please water those seeds that were sown? Would you please not allow the women who don't know Jesus yet as their Savior and their shepherd to quickly forget what they heard. I pray that you would cause it by your spirit to stick in their minds and their hearts. Show them their need of Jesus as their Savior and their King. And continue to orchestrate circumstances and conversations that they might be drawn to you by your grace. And use us in that process, Lord. Help us to be prayerful and intentional and thoughtful and creative about how to continue to water those seeds that were sown. Lord, please help us now. Teach us. We're not here by accident. Your word is powerful. You have plans to change us, to help us, to strengthen us, to convict us. And Lord, we pray that you would do it this morning, on the spot, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, showing us the glory of Jesus, drawing us to him as our great Savior and our King. So please, we need you to be our teacher. We need your spirit to come, drive away the distraction, give us eye, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and soft hearts to perceive and receive your grace and mercy that we so desperately need this morning. So come and help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, as we're walking through the book of Luke. So a fairly well-known parable of this Pharisee and tax collector. We know the story maybe too well. We quickly put the black hat on the Pharisee, the white hat on the tax collector, but the original hearers would have done just the opposite. The Pharisee was the one that they would have looked up to as an exemplar of piety, and the tax collector would have been um, really despicable in their eyes. And so it was shocking that Jesus would say, who went away justified? Not the Pharisee. Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. And then the Pharisee's beating his breast. He can't even look up to heaven. He's standing far off. Have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm the sinner. I'm not just a sinner. I am the sinner. I am the worst of sinners. All I can ask for is mercy. And so in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified 
By the way, if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, the text can be found on page 1046. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And then he gives the reason. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then there's this thing about these babies. There's no major transition here like, and, and then the next day or something like that, this is the same themes continuing, and hopefully we'll see that clearly as we go along, um, that these verses are a very important reinforcement of things that Jesus has already said in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they are setting up what will come after because the rich young ruler who comes next is actually case in point of what Jesus is saying here. Um, Hopefully we'll see that clearly as we go along. So 14 is kind of a segue. Everyone who exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And then verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to Jesus so that he would touch them. Okay, you can picture this scenario, right? Jesus has touched so many people already. He has blessed and healed so many. And in a day... Back then, when infant mortality rates and even young child mortality rates were very high, you can imagine why these peasant women would want Jesus to touch and bless their children, their babies. Maybe some of these babies were sick, but most of the mothers probably just hoped that Jesus' touch would prevent their babies getting sick and dying. Jesus' disciples see this, and they take it upon themselves to be Jesus' security detail. Okay, this is the Messiah here bringing the kingdom, the kingdom of God. We're talking politics and power and new world order here. Jesus doesn't have time to hold babies. Okay, the media atmosphere back then wasn't quite what it is today. You know, a quick photo op holding a little baby of one of the common people. You know, Iowans maybe, salt of the earth, <coughs> to show Jesus' solidarity with the little people. That wasn't quite as valuable back then as it might be today to use, you know, as a little spotlight soundbite thing um, on the evening news. So the disciples put up the security tape and they tell these people in no uncertain terms that this will not be allowed. Look at verses 15 and 16 and see their rebuke and then Jesus' rebuke. So these, these people are bringing even their babies to him so that Jesus would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. In the book of Luke, rebuke is reserved almost exclusively for those who oppose the purposes and mercy of God. So, for instance, Jesus rebuked demons repeatedly as he cast them out. Jesus rebuked his disciples when they wanted, remember he was going along and he said, you know, tell the Samaritans, you know, we're going to go through Samaria, make preparations. And they said, "Uh -uh, you're not coming here. They rejected them. And the disciples say, you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans for rejecting, you know, Jesus' request for hospitality? Jesus rebukes them. That's not 
That's not the nature of my mission here at this time. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples when he was riding into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, you know, on the donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This isn't right. And here the disciples are rebuking those who want Jesus to bless their babies. Jesus is making it clear that doing this is tantamount to opposing the purposes and the mercy of God. He's putting them in the same category as some of these others who needed rebuke. So Jesus calls for them saying, listen, disciples, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Did you notice that language? It's actually stronger in Mark, the text that Todd read. It says they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Okay, so this is not mild. This is a serious rebuke. He returns rebuke with rebuke. Just as he rebuked the demons who were in opposition to his kingdom coming, he rebukes the disciples who were hindering his kingdom ways and means here. Okay, which actually betrays the fact on the disciples' part that they didn't get it yet. They didn't get the nature of his kingdom. Again, in in Mark 9 and 10, this is really obvious. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. See the repetition of that theme there. Okay, we've seen again and again how Jesus is upending and reversing the values of the world's kingdoms and his with his kingdom values. This is the kingdom in which everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, like it says in 18.14, right before our text. This is the kingdom in other places where, chapter 6, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. Blessed are... Those whom men hate and ostracize and insult and scorn for the sake of the Son of Man. This is the kingdom in which the Son who broke all the rules and ran far from home, when he came to his senses, he's welcomed back into the family honor and given this joyful celebration. All the while, this is the same kingdom where the son who, quote-unquote, kept the rules, who never left home, refuses to come in and celebrate mercy. And he's actually blinded to how far from home he really is. That's the nature of this kingdom. It's just upside down. It's topsy-turvy. So many reversals. And most recently, in verses 9 to 14, the kingdom in which this scrupulous and apparently righteous though really self-righteous Pharisee, goes home from the temple unrighteous, not justified. And this traitorous, slimy tax collector who beats his breast and pleads for mercy goes home justified. So Jesus is pounding the nature of his kingdom home again and again because we are so slow to believe the sheerness and the freeness of the gospel. We are spring-loaded to self-righteousness. And as such, 
whether it's the Pharisee, whether it's the rich young ruler, whether it's the older brother in Luke 15, what we end up doing is we, we set up this little kingdom caste system to confirm our standing. So rather than ground level, like the level is ground at the foot of the cross, we end up becoming critical. We treat people with contempt. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. Because we need to reinforce our superiority complex. And then what ends up happening is we end up deciding who is worth our time and who is not, just like the disciples. Do you see how these themes make sense as they go along? So here are the disciples rebuking these people, basically saying, this isn't worth Jesus' time. They are, in effect, hindering the weak and helpless ones from the blessing of Jesus. I mean, after all, if we read ahead a little bit here, there's this ruler waiting to speak to Jesus. This is a really important person. He's rich, so he's obviously been blessed by God, right? He's powerful. And Jesus is the king after all. He doesn't have time to bless babies when rulers are waiting in the wings. So Jesus rebukes this, saying, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Disciples should be agents who grease the skids for the little ones to come to Jesus, not obstacles that make it hard to come to Jesus to find blessing. Now, how does this apply to us? (laughs) Um, How is this supposed to function or operate on our hearts? We've seen how hindering the little ones like this betrays this heart that's in the wrong place, okay? A heart that's still shaped and dictated by the values of this world, okay? Not the values of the kingdom that Jesus was and is bringing. And so if that's the case, if that's where our heart is, then we're going to lead others from where we are. We're going to react and respond to others and lead from where we are, just like the disciples were. Their response actually betrayed where their heart was. So they responded out of where they were, betrayed where they were. And it wasn't in a place where they deeply grasped the values of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. So you and I do the same thing. And sometimes it's not until we have to react or respond and lead that we discover where we are. Okay, so the reason the disciples were not permitting the children, they were hindering them, is because they didn't yet understand the kingdom. They needed to, their values were all out of whack, and they themselves needed to receive the kingdom like children. Okay, that's where Jesus goes next. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the fact that they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom had, it, it kind of went public in the way that they responded to these people bringing their babies. They led from where they were. And they were not yet where Jesus was taking them. Now, what I asked was, how does this apply to us? Okay, so we tend to like children in our day and age. You know, we're, we're actually, we're not living in the Oliver Twist, you know, days of child labor or in the days when children should be seen and not heard. We, we don't live in those days pretty much, at least here. We actually have a pretty sentimental view of children. 
We might have smiled at Jesus' blessing. If we could have been transported back there then with kind of our makeup and orientation today, we might have smiled at Jesus blessing the children if they were coming, right? That's great. Look at Jesus. He's so loving to children. We love children. They're so cute, cuddly, you know? But that doesn't mean that the text doesn't have anything to say to us. What is the underlying root that Jesus is exposing and seeking to sever in his disciples? It's the root of opposing the nature and the purposes of the kingdom. Because there's a value system that's not in line with Jesus' value system. Not the value system of his countercultural kingdom. So is there any sense in which we in our day could be prone to the same thing? Okay, just really trying to think through this. How, how would we do this? Because we would not do the children thing, but that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply. They had a different non-sentimental view of children then this worth system that's different from ours. So how, how might we do this? How, how might this root be present in our hearts? Well, what about churches where those with messed up lives feel out of place? Have you ever been in a church that considered itself mature and they had very little riffraff coming through the door? I have. It's not, it's not here, okay? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, is that mature? Is it mature to be so mature that people that are a mess don't feel comfortable coming in to the doors? How about this? Can the happy and holy sexual morality of God's kingdom in its proper place turn into a moral smugness and prudery and a tisk-tisk at the loose woman who walks through the doors. Doesn't she know anything about modesty? Isn't modesty important? Of course it is. But do people need to be modest to come to Jesus? No. To Jesus is exactly where they need to go. And he can deal with the looseness of soul and secure that woman with his love. And she no longer needs to try to turn heads or feel beautiful or grasp for control by manipulative means. Another example. Can the marriage really matters and the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus is at stake in our marriages and divorce is a lie about the character of Jesus and the church has been much too lax in dealing with the divorce rate in the church and so forth. Those are all true good things, but can that morph into a posture where we look with suspicion on a divorced person who comes in the door in raw pain? Our first impulse is suspicion rather than you're, in, you're hurting and you're in need. You came to the right place. If we do those things, if that kind of morph takes place, what's going on? Why? Why would we be hindering rather than greasing the skids? Is it maybe because of the value system? Maybe it's because of some of this 
Pharisee heart that we've just seen in the last section rather than the tax collector heart. How about bad parenting? (laughs) We criticize and judge and roll our eyes. Of course bad parents will come through the door. Glad you're here. You're right where you need to be. Where in the world are you going to learn how to grow in grace and truth as a parent? So do you see how we could make a judgment and then we kind of do this? And it's like, whoa, wait a second. These are needy, weak people, like little children, dependent, helpless, who need grace. We should not hinder them. We should help them. doesn't mean we glorify um, mess and immodesty and, you know, as if the stuff that Jesus says about divorce doesn't matter. No, no not, none of that. It's, it's the heart with which we address these things. What are our knee-jerk reactions? How could we be hindering the very weak ones who need the blessing of Jesus with our self-righteous anti-kingdom of God thinking? Okay? So you lead from where you are. You react and respond from where you are. If you are self-righteous, you will not permit and you will hinder those who are obviously morally inferior, even if they're broken and self-consciously in need of mercy. So this is an important word for us. Okay, We need to hear this again because we're so spring-loaded to self-righteousness, which comes, and with that comes this superiority complex and critical spirits and judgmentalism, okay? So, if we're going to permit the children to come and not hinder, we need to first receive the kingdom. Uh, Look at point four, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Okay, Jesus is saying this to his disciples and those others who are listening in. It's obvious from the way that they're responding to these little ones that they don't get the nature of his kingdom. We said that. Um, if you don't receive like a child, you will not receive the children. Okay, that's the logic of what Jesus is saying. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? That's pretty important because that's kind of the key to the whole thing, right? Again, there's several parallel passages. Uh, Todd mentioned this in the other Gospels. Some of them have different nuances slightly different points at times that they're making. We want to make sure we stay home here, make sure we hear what Jesus says here, and we don't read in other things from other passages. Sometimes they shed light. Sometimes they make different points. Uh, So we need to be careful not to read in from other passages and, and pay attention with this one itself. The other thing we need to be careful is we can't read our cultural moment into this text. I've already talked about how we have a more sentimental view of children than they did at that time. Commentators and pastors sometimes get a lot of misguided mileage out of this passage. Okay? Um, And by the way, just lest you think that I'm looking down on all you sentimentalists, like child sentimentalist. Um, I am one. (laughs) Okay. Um, I have a sentimental view of children in a sense. I love having a one-year-old to kiss and tickle and we take pictures and video and send them to grandparents and he melts my heart and on and on and on. Okay. All I'm saying is we just can't import our cultural moment view of children into theirs and assume that that was the point. Okay. The reason the disciples were 
rebuking is because Jesus didn't have time for these not as important people. We can't import things like that into the text. If we read back something in that Jesus didn't intend, then we're going to end up misunderstanding. We're going to end up misapplying what he said. Basic principle of Bible study and interpretation, you've got to go through Palestine to get to Wilmington. Does that make sense? Got to make sure you understood, understand what it meant in that context so that we can rightly apply it to our context. One quick example. Um, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but you know, the rich young ruler, there's this whole eye of the needle thing. You know, the camel going through the eye of the needle. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man enter the kingdom of God. Have you heard that sermon where the preacher tells you about the historical background? You know, there's this small gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And if a traveler was to enter through that narrow gate, he would have to get down off of his camel and the camel would have to bow low in order to get through that small gate. And maybe, maybe the burdens that that camel is bearing would need to be thrown off. Only the humble ones. I should stop. This is terrible. Um, not trying to mock anybody. But you can see how this stuff preaches. And sometimes, because we're looking for something that preaches, we don't pay careful attention to what the text actually says and we read stuff in. Only the humble ones who are willing to offload their burdens. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Guess what? A guy named Theophlact in the 11th century is apparently the first person to suggest that interpretation. Moral of the story, don't ever trust someone named Theophlact, okay? Um, No, that's not really the point. The point is that there was no such gate in the first century. Jesus was really talking about a needle, okay? Not quite exactly like our needles as the metalworking machinery was not quite what it is today, okay? But the whole point is you can't fit a camel. Okay, other cultures had, where elephant was the biggest animal they knew of, they had a parable. Elephant, through, or like an idiomatic expression, you can't put an elephant through an eye of a needle. So the whole point is you can't do it. So... We can't treat the Bible like that love song when you were in high school. Okay? Did you do this? Uh, You break up and you're in pain and you hear a song and you immediately assume that it's describing your story. It's all about love lost and a broken heart. And then maybe later on what happens is you you read, or or especially if, if someone actually told you in the moment that... They just watched an interview with that artist, and he, and he was actually describing the, the, the betrayal in a business partnership or some artistic venture that went sour or friendship or whatever. You wouldn't care. You've read your meaning, your story, your interpretation into the words of that song, and that's what it means to me. Okay? Right? Did you do this in high school? I'm guilty. Okay? Okay, so if you want to do that with a song, fine. You're not going to die. But it's dangerous to do that with the Bible. Okay, We can't import the meaning into it. We need to understand what it means. So what does Jesus mean when he says he, uh, that we must receive the kingdom like a child? Here's what we can't import. Commentator um, James Garland said it so well. He says, Jesus does not say here that we are to become like little children. He does say that elsewhere, but not here. Again, stay home and be careful with the language. Jesus does not say here that we are to become like little children. He does not refer to some inherent quality in children, such as their 
imagined receptivity, humility, trustfulness, lack of self-consciousness, transparency, hopefulness, openness to the future, simplicity, freshness, excitement, or any other idealized quality that commentators often attribute to children. None of these virtues were associated with children in the first century culture. And they reflect a contemporary sentimental view of children. Okay? So we would be reading that back in. So what's the point here? The point is total helplessness and dependence. Even the babies. They were even bringing the babies, the infants. Okay, this is why it's not a massive shift in theme from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That tax collector knew he was not worthy to draw near. He had no performance to recount. All he brought to the temple was his sin. He was ashamed, guilty, and broken. All he could claim or ask for was mercy. He could only receive mercy because he was in abject spiritual need. He knew he was only a receiver. He would never put God in his debt by his moral record. God is the benefactor. We are only ever beneficiaries. So Jesus says, permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these people that are, that are dependent and receiver-like like children. They're not self-sufficient. They're needy. They receive everything as a gift. Okay, so you and I, we may need to, I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you haven't ever really come to Jesus like that tax collector, beating your breast and saying, I need mercy. So you may need to hear this, receive the kingdom for the first time. And you can come and find that mercy and go home today justified. Reconciled and right with God in his sight because of Jesus' work on the cross. But also, all of us need this. The disciples needed this beaten into their heads. We may need this message again for the 500th time. We are and we only ever will be receivers. God is the benefactor. The blessing of Jesus is not bestowed on those who quote-unquote deserve it. It's not bestowed on those with exalted status by worldly definitions. It's bestowed on those who have a humble awareness of their sinful, undeserving status. So who gets into the kingdom? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who gets into the kingdom? The ones with clout and pull and impressive CVs and success and the right degrees and letters after their name and social network and on and on? No. We'll see that the one, next week, we'll see that the one who the disciples thought was the shoe in the rich young ruler, is the one who will turn away sad, rejecting Jesus and his kingdom. So fitness for the kingdom is at issue here in this section. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying, bottom line, if you have received a kingdom, if you recognize your utter dependence and helplessness and sin and need, that you bring nothing to the table but your sin, if you have received the kingdom like a little child, if you have received mercy, and any righteousness that's ever practically worked into your character is also a gift of grace, 
then those who are weak and needy will, as soon as you see them, you'll say, that's a prime candidate for the kingdom. You won't hinder them. You'll actually help them. You'll welcome them. So there are no little people. There are none who are not worthy of our time. There are none who are expendable. There are none who are inconsequential. Who do we think we are? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Francis Schaeffer, that great apologist, has this little chapter, and actually it's the title of the book, but it's a book of essays, kind of a collection. It's called No Little People. And this text just made me think of that. I read the article, didn't find a quote, but the title's good, so I'm using the title. Um, We are all little people. We are nothing special. What do we have that we did not receive? So we dare not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Who do we think we are? We're all completely dependent, spiritually bankrupt, debt-ridden beggars. We are all little people. And you know what? We've bought a bill of goods with our monopoly money if we think we're somebody. And we look down on others with a superiority complex and with contempt. If we really want or need to be somebody, then we end up constantly giving way to comparison and criticism. We've got to do that because it's where our source of identity and security derives. And we looked at that two weeks ago. We need to just pour contempt on all our pride, not pour contempt on all those people that are not as good as us out there, okay? No, we're all little people. And the wonderful irony is, and I think this is the logic of this text, when we know that we are all little people, then there are no little people. There are none who are inconsequential, none who are not worth our time. Gospel humility begets indiscriminate, impartial love. Pride roadblocks love. So that's why Jesus says, disciples, you don't get my kingdom. Permit them, don't hinder them. This is the kind of This is a picture. This is a a little parable. This little baby is a picture of the people who get my kingdom. So don't hinder them. Welcome them. You are in the same boat. So if you don't receive the kingdom like a little child, you won't enter in at all. Okay, so as we approach the table, the Lord's Supper This morning, how appropriate to celebrate the death of our Savior as part of the application. This is actually part of the application of this text. We all thought that we were big people. We thought we were big stuff. In fact, we all by nature want to be big people. We want to be big stuff. And you know what? Don't think that because you're kind of a unsuccessful you know, melancholy type, that you don't deal with pride. Self-pity is pride wallowing and licking licking its wounds. Okay, we are all prideful. We all want to be somebody big. And when it doesn't happen, this is why. Look so humble. 
It's not. So what ugly, hopeless, cosmic insurrection our pride is. And our big God would be just and righteous to squash us and show us who is really big and who is really small. The potter has every right to squash and start over with clay that resists and bites and resents his loving hands. But he didn't. Instead, what did he do? He sent his son, our big God, willingly became small and took on the flesh and bones and blood as part of a nobody, peasant, blue-collar family that had this cloud of shame of a shotgun wedding hanging over them. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus existed in the form of God Though that was true, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto and used to his own advantage. He didn't need to. He had nothing to prove, but he willingly emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a nobody, a little person, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died for our pride and our self-righteousness. He humbled himself and died to give grace to the proud. And all who humble themselves like little children and receive the gift of free mercy are welcomed into Jesus' kingdom and his blessing. So have you received the kingdom of God like a child? Maybe you have, but maybe that inner Pharisee is raising its head lately and you are looking down on others and it is a big roadblock to love and you need to hear this again. That we always and forever receive the kingdom only as a helpless, dependent child. Have you poured contempt on all your pride and given up these self-justification projects? This isn't easy. It's really hard for us to receive a handout. We like to get ahead by our smarts and success and self-discipline. We want to have a performance record to boast in, to be secure in, to point to. We want some glory. We want to feel at least a little worthy. And Jesus is saying here, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. We have no claim. And if we just accept that fact, then we will be filled for the first time or freshly this morning with this wonderful mercy that humbles us to the dust. And then when we see other little ones around us as we're down low where we ought to be, we're not going to hinder them. We're not going to be an obstacle. We're going to say, oh, there's a needy one just like me. I've got just the place for you. I've got just the person for you. Come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your grace, your mercy. The gospel is such good news that you would 
conceive a plan for us proud sinners, that you would execute a plan for us proud sinners so that the judgment that our pride deserves would be spent on your son as he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we would be humbled and realize that we are absolutely helpless and dependent. And then receiving that mercy, those who humble themselves, believing the gospel, will be exalted. So humble us this morning, Lord, for the sake of boasting only in the cross of the Lord Jesus and giving you all the glory and then to be filled up with that mercy and grace to pour out as your agents on all those around us that are weak and helpless and in need of that same mercy and grace that you have given to us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.